0: Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. Next up on our event schedule is the Planet Microcap Showcase Virtual on December 6th through 8, 2022. On day one of the event, we'll be hosting the first ever Stock Pitch World Cup. Six global areas, six moderators. 24 total stock pitches. Joining us to moderate each special session is Maj Suedan representing the USA, Paul Andriola representing Canada, Fadi Diab representing Australia, Jason Hirschman representing Europe, and Kelvin Sito representing Asia. The only way to see the Stock Pitch World Cup is by registering now. And then, of course, on day two and three will be presentations from microcap management teams as well as one-on-one meetings. Attendance for our event is complimentary for investors and registration is now open for it. So to join us, please visit www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com. Now, for this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Sri Viswanathan, President and Portfolio Manager at SVN Capital, Stephen Keel, Founder and CIO of Arquitos Capital, and Keith Smith, Portfolio Manager of Bonhoeffer Capital Management. We did a similar Willow Oak Roundtable conversation back in 2020, and thought I'd bring the crew back together for a temperature check on 2022. I really appreciated everyone's take here, and I think you will too, on what we're experiencing in 2022, how we got here, what's ahead, and why all three guests are embracing the idea to one degree or another, that the special situation right now is finding growth-oriented firms using value framework. Thank you again for tuning into episode 245 of the Planet Microcap podcast. And please enjoy the Willow Oak Roundtable with Sri Viswanathan, Stephen Keel, and Keith Smith. This episode is brought to you by Stream by Alpha Sets. streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.co backslash PMC. Welcome back to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And joining me today is we're we're actually doing another Willow Oak Roundtable. We did one of these um, not that long ago, about almost two years ago. And it was time to to bring the the band back together to get everybody's take on the year that is. And I think uh, most people would like to think of it as the year that was. But here we are. It's still 2022, and we want to talk about what's going on. So, joining me today, we have Sri Viswanathan, President and Portfolio Manager at SVN Capital. We have Stephen Keel, Founder and CIO at Arquitos Capital, as well as Keith Smith, Portfolio Manager of Bonhoeffer Capital Management. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? Alex, Bobby, hey, thanks, Bobby. Great. Thanks Thanks for thanks having me here. It's great to have you. So, as I said, you know, I wanted to get a kind of to, at least to start. To do a general temperature check on, on on this year in 2022, and then we're going to dig into some topics that I found were really interesting from your most recent investor letters that I think folks should uh, think more about because I, I think they're really good topics um, for for our core audience here. So to start us off, Keith, you know, give give us your take. You know, how is the year that is 2022 for you right now?
1: Well, it's it's an interesting year. I mean, most most portfolios, as people know, are are down. Um, depending on, and down varies down various amounts. Um, it's a time definitely of retrenching and rethinking. I mean, I think these times when the market is down is when I know personally I've probably learned more than when the market's up. You learn more from sort of you know the challenges that happen in portfolios. Um, one thing that I specifically found very interesting at this point is looking at companies that are growing from sources other than organic growth given sort of the dearth of growth in the in the in the world in general and with populations declining and those types of things you ha- you have a organic growth is a rare commodity in in the markets today. And a lot of times organic growth is priced into the values of companies. And so one thing I've been sort of trying to find are there other areas where companies have historically grown in the past that may not be reflected in the valuations? One in particular is sort of like growth through MA. I mean, there's pluses and minuses with that. You need to have the right. Management needs to be, you need to have the right process, you need to have management with the right temperament because it's it's clearly not an easy process. As through a number of studies have said, most, most acquisitions fail in terms of creating value. So looking at the ones that do create value is an interesting sort of um, area. And what I've tried to find are specific companies where they are involved in acquisition aspects of it. So they're getting this organic growth, they've done it in the past and will continue to do it in the future. Also taking also taking a concept or a, group, a concept from a book by a guy named John Neff, a very famous mutual fund investor that ran the Windsor Fund through the 1970s, a similar time to this, not exactly the same with his relatively high inflation, there were shortages. And how did he do? What were some of his best sort of areas for Finding companies that did well during that, that period of time. And one thing, Area, he talks about are these unrecognized growth companies, which are companies where you can get growth rates, let's say, like in the double-digit growth rates, but multiples relatively modest. And what happens in, in those in those cases is what I've noticed in a number of cases is the market does not give credit for future acquisitions. They'll only give credit for what the company has today. And that and adds some. Does a really interesting, it you know, provides an interesting opportunity, I think, for investors. And you know, this was something I sort of observed a few years ago, but really sort of made a larger part of the Bonhoeffer Fund in regards to finding these opportunities. Um, there are across different industries. I mean, there's some in certain industries, but there's it's a cross section of different industries where this is happening. So I think it provides an interesting exposure for folks that are looking for a different type of. It's a it's it's clearly a value. The Bonhoeffer fund is a value-oriented fund so it's in essence and some people may call it deep value but it's definitely a value-oriented strategy that's combined with sort of this growth aspect of it and, and he, the book that he wrote is really good I'll sort of put it up here it's called John Neff and in investing it's a it's a it's it's one of the, the classic books that's out there it's written is written in the I believe it was the 19 early 1990s so it's not necessarily a new book but it's really is a good book he was like one of the best performers best performing mutual fund managers from i would say the mid 70s through the 80s and he sort of in the book sort of goes through and talks about his strategies and then what i find really interesting is he has a diary in the back and sort of goes through the various times when you know, over time what happened and so you can get an idea taking a look at okay this is real time here's some of the companies he looked at here's ones that did well here's ones that didn't do well so it's a very it's a very interesting I think uh it's an interesting book to read in, in these times of sort of inflation we're sort of a we re- I think inflation's here for probably similar but different reasons but in essence it provides I think a nice sort of um set of frameworks for people to look at in regards to sort of investment ideas and themes that they can come up with in their portfolios
0: very good thank you Keith Stephen you can I come to you uh yeah absolutely absolutely um we got. <laughs> I, thought, I thought you were going to pull up your, your John Neff anecdote.
2: Well, you know, a couple of things on Keith, um, on, on Keith's comments that I want to echo. Um, first of all, excellent book. Um, I, I remember reading that in the beginning of my investing career and, and, uh, John Neff is not really a household name, but he was an excellent investor. One of the best performing mutual fund investors at the time, um, which, you know, including kind of higher fees. So, um, he he's, he's a legend for sure. Um, And I I do remember an anecdote from the book uh, when I was reading it where he was like on vacation in Europe um, and he was reading a Wall Street Journal one morning and one of his investors came up to him, uh, happened to recognize him and came up to him and said, oh, I'm invested in one of your mutual funds. It's good to see you're working, you know, you're nonstop working. And and the idea is... um, you know, he's, he's sitting there reading a Wall Street Journal. That's his that's his work. That's the information that he has. There was actually an advantage to get access to a Wall Street Journal, you know, while in Europe in 1982 or something like that. And it just shows the difference between, um, you know, access to information here in in 2022 compared to the 70s and 80s, where he would basically call long distance uh, back to his office a couple of times a day and, uh, and read the journal. And uh, that's what you know, kept him abreast of today, <laughs> uh, which is a little bit crazy, uh, but but also to echo Keith's comments about um, just M um, and A uh, and let's say uh, interesting things in the market today that I'm looking at uh, that because of so let's say dislocations and changes uh, now we get interesting. Um, divestment, divestitures. Uh, we get some corporate restructuring. There's some interesting bankruptcy stuff going on. Uh, there are companies with warrants. You know, there's an end of the SPAC boom that there, there could be some interesting things there as well. Uh, and so it's really a fascinating time to be an investor. You know, all of us obviously wish that performance uh, was a little bit different this year. Uh, but first of all, we have a couple more months to go. So who knows what could happen? But, uh, but you know, this is these difficult times in the market is when we set up uh, the performance for the future, because this is when we're finding companies that the overall market is not appreciating. Uh, and and uh, you know this gives smart investors who are digging deep into these opportunities, uh, a time period to, uh, to accumulate these companies and then have the patience to hold them over the next few years where we can, Uh, you know, hopefully see the realization of the actual value. Uh, So that's what I'm looking at. It's a lot of similar to Keith and I'm sure with three as well. We're excited about this environment and, uh, you know, it's we have to we have to dislocate or or, sorry, disassociate uh, the actual kind of day to day performance uh, compared to the exciting investment opportunities that we're finding that we know will work out over the next few years.
0: Very good. Thank, thank
2: I mean, so some other yeah.
1: interesting things I think that is sort of <laughs> happening here, too, is if you look at investment surveys, people are pretty much negative now. So that aspect of it, I think, leads to some interesting opportunities that Steve had mentioned, and I'm sure Sri will go into the same sort of things. But the sentiment is really poor amongst individual investors and just in investors in general. And you just think about the amount of negative stuff that's actually happened now. It's pretty big, right? I mean, I, mean, I guess there's a few more things that could go wrong, but it's going to be, it'll be tough to really find. So I think in terms of events being random over time, there's probably some positive surprises at some point that are going to happen, but who knows when that's going to happen. Right. But that's just another sort of observation. I think from a general Mac, from a general market perspective, I think that's, that's out there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, Hey, coming to you, Sri, you know, what, what, what's been your, your, your general temperature check thus far in the, in this year so far in 2022.
3: Sure. But before that, um, and I, I, I do want to echo, um, one important point that Keith brought up and Steve reiterated, which is this concept of reinvestment. This, uh, acquisitive growth that, um, Keith was referring to is essentially, um, addressing a very important concept in compounding value through reinvestment. Um, I absolutely, you know, that's an integral part of my analysis when I'm looking to deploy capital um, I'm not only looking for high quality businesses that are generating high returns on incremental capital, but also have this um, high reinvestment opportunity. However, this acquisitive growth is an area that I'm always a little careful on. And I remember back in the days, you know, Warren Buffett doesn't write like this these days. But back in the day, in one of his annual letters, he referred to this acquisitive growth in his own inimitable style. He was um, quoting this country singer Bobby Bear and um, essentially telling us that, um, you know, the song was about, I've never gone to bed with an ugly woman but i sure have woken up with a few and uh that uh, that is what you know that is what comes back to mind whenever i think about acquisitive growth but the uh, the concept of reinvestment is a very important piece um and i fully agree uh, with keith on that um the other point that he brought up which is also um kind of uh illuminating as far as this particular year is concerned i've seen more recently i'm sure you have come across this chart, I think it was Bank of America, BFA, which put out this chart recently, you know, cash held in institutional funds is at the highest level since 2008. When we're talking about 2008 being the great financial crisis, Uh, financial institutions were the epicenter of that that, uh, crisis. And here we are, you know, the individual balance sheets are um, at a at an all-time high. Um, institutional corporate balance sheets are also uh, in a much better position relative to what it was in the past. Of course, because of all the regulatory uh, changes that have happened since the financial crisis, banks, which were the epicenter of that crisis, are in a much better position, well-capitalized. I think it's the sovereign balance sheet which has sort of ballooned in terms of debt, uh, that's a completely different problem altogether. Um, and if you sort of narrow it down in terms of uh, the overall economic performance, now we have almost two full jobs available for every applicant that's looking. And so job scenario is actually well-placed. Um, so everything that you have typically seen as the primary driver of crisis in the past is absent in this case. And yet you see uh, significant fear Uh, both from individual and institutional investors, you know, taking cash all the way up to 2008 level, which I think, you know, Steve referred to this, is actually positioning our portfolios, our individual portfolios, exceptionally well in the near to medium term and long term, of course. So that's my take. We'll see what uh, Jerome Powell comes out with later today. Um, But uh, overall, I take the view that um, you know, we have we've, uh, been through these types of um, events in the past. Uh, in fact, I refer to it in my, in my, uh, in my mid-year letter. Uh, one of my favorite writers is this gentleman, Nick Murray, and uh, he has very uh, eloquently put this in the past. The dominant determinant of real life returns is not investment performance. But investor behavior. Um, You know, people get scared at uh, various different times and um, run for the hills. That is what has happened, is happening, uh, which I think is uh, a significant positive for people like us. Bobby, if I can, if you allow me to, I can actually share this interesting chart that I put out in the um, mid year letter. Mm -hmm. Um, Let me see if I can share that.
0: Okay, here, let me allow your sharing real quick. All right, you're good. Okay. Sorry, for those who are listening to the audio version, I'll I'll include this in the show notes or in in a link in the description. So you can see.
3: So yeah, this is essentially, this is a chart from JP Morgan Wealth Management not too long ago. I thought this was an excellent chart. And and so I included it in my mid-year letter. Essentially, it lists, Year by year, going back to only 1999, uh, from 1999 all the way to 2021, the various different reasons why you could have found a reason not to be invested. And yet, if you look to the far right, the returns that have been generated since then, Mm -hmm. um, the blue wiggly line that you're seeing, that's S&P 500. So, for example, in 1999, you had Y2K scare. In 2000, it was the tech wreck. Um, you know, and so on and so forth. 2021, 2020 was COVID and uh, 21 was the Omicron variant. 2006 year is actually an interesting data. It's not a bad year, but Pluto was demoted from being a planet. And that's the only reason. (laughs) There we go. So, I mean, there are, uh, you know, there have been incidents like this. um, And we will, of course, see more incidents like this in the future and, um, I thought that would be an interesting chart to highlight. In no, I, I
0: that actually stood out to me when when I was uh, you know getting ready for our panel today is that, uh, is that chart and you know something that um, uh, uh, you 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 quoted Daniel Kahneman and is a partner. I always mess up how I say his name. Sir, sir, correct me. Um, when you'll you'll correct me, but we yeah. were t- you you talked about the idea of availability bias in that in your letter as well, and and that describes our ten. And I'm quoting from directly from your letter here, where it describes our tendency to use information that comes to mind quickly and easily when making decisions. And you you mentioned how this is quite prevalent, especially when you were you talked about that conversation you were having with your your. It was a real investor, but you were hiding their identity with Peter. Um, where they're talking about how they're
1: just so fearful of what's to come. Um, so, you know, I mean, it, it, yeah. it's, it's interesting, like you're saying, I mean, the other thing I think aspect of this, I think that that may not that not, not a lot of people's talk about, but I think is out there is the, the chart that Shri put up there is great. Those are U.S. returns and are probably indicative of most of what I would say are Democratic type of returns. If you invest in autocracies, the returns are very different and significantly less. And so I think that's one thing that, that it's an interesting note that when people talk about international diversification, sometimes they say, oh, just go invest anywhere internationally. And you have to be really careful. I mean, there's some really good studies, and I can provide that to you, Bobby, in terms of the reference in this. But what they've shown, they've gone back and they've looked at countries that were autocr- autocracies versus democracies. They found the rate of return of companies in democracies, this is going back to probably 2000 or even before that, is double that of autocracies. And intuitively, you think it makes sense, but that's actual raw data to say that, okay, if you look at some places where there's autocracies, now there countries that are moving that way. Let's say like, for example, China. There's a reason why these multiples have come down from China. And the real question in my mind is for them to go back up things have to improve. If things stay the way they are or continue to go down. And a lot of people rely on sort of this reversion to the mean type of phenomena when it comes to investing, that things are going to revert back to where they were. But you really need to take a look at the dynamics of the the cases where the markets have gone up over significant periods of time. Those are primarily democratic countries with capitalist type of systems. So the shareholders get a a decent share of the economic profits of the businesses. If you're in a situation where you're in a more autocratic system, where what's happening is the same thing's happening, it's just that the shares of the pie is being not, as a shareholder, you're not getting the same share of the pie that you would as a Democrat, a shareholder of a company in a democracy. And you just need to realize that. And I think that's a, I was surprised at the difference there almost two X, but I think it makes sense from that perspective. Yeah, and we have
2: to keep in mind, I mean, most U.S. companies have some sort of international um, presence, whether from suppliers or customers or things of that nature. And so, you know, when you want to get access to certain regions or areas, you can often do that through U.S. companies with U.S. laws, uh, with U.S. listings, um, you know, with all the protective measures in place of information distribution. Uh, that is a, more reliable here in the U.S. So, uh, you know, look, I, I'm primarily a U.S. North America, English speaking investor, um, not to say on occasion, I haven't, I haven't um, taken an opportunity beyond that, but I think there are a ton of opportunities in the U.S. market. And especially if you're a smaller investor on the over-the-counter market, uh, the pink sheets and things like that, where there are voluntary disclosures, uh, even if they're not SEC filing, And Mm -hmm. some of these companies still go back 30, 40, 50 years and they, you know, you can rely on the rule of law. And, you know, this kind of veers a little bit on into what's going on in Delaware and and the Twitter Elon Musk fight um, that, you know, this is, this is the foundation of corporate law in, in these States like Delaware.
0: Very good. I mean, look, you, I th- I was gonna save this question for later, but I think maybe now is a good time to to bring this up. You know, for our what what would you say is the general what what is the general retail audience missing in times like these? Like, why 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 does this keep happening? I know we could talk about behavioral biases and we can quote Kahneman and Tversky, um, you know, over and over, but it just yeah. keeps happening, especially, you know, now where it's just so focused on the short term, you know, there's a lot of the, you know, all the noise is coming in. And then you see charts like what Shri just shared with us, where in times where you think that, you know, things are going to hell and they don't, you know, maybe they do in, in a little bit in the short term, of course, but long term, if you're really thinking beyond, you know, that the world won't come to an end, you know, there's there's returns to be had. So at least where we exist right now in, in this current downturn, what are folks missing?
3: Well, do people have
2: cash right now too? You know, That's the question with inflation right. and, and gas prices going up and you know, real estate, um, you know, if you're, if you're looking to purchase a new home or at least rent, you know, your prices have gone up. So you don't have the disposable cash that you used to have in order to gamble. And when mm-hmm. beginning of COVID, you know, we, we had a lot of kind of gambling uh, which happens, you know, okay, it's always happened. It, it, it happens regularly, but at various times it happens more often than not. And, you know, you have disbursements from the government and you had people with a lot of free time on their hands. And so there was kind of meme stock gambling, which is still occurring, uh, but not to the degree it was a year ago. Uh, so I think that's the ultimate question. You know, do people have, do people, not only do they have the disposable cash, but do they feel comfortable gambling with it? And I, I don't think they do as much today.
1: Well, and, but, and I think like, I, yeah, I think like you said Steve that, that that was probably a very good lesson for a lot of people that sort of started out and I think Bobby part of the quote thing is is I think why people feel so in malaise is their exposure to s- single individual cryptocurrencies or stocks or whatever they a lot of people took a very undiversified approach to dealing with situations which it entails risk and if you're not if you're not going to do a whole lot of research that can lead you to really you know, run, run into issues. Now, I, I mean, I think part of it is the Shree's chart showed the one advantage of the of having like a S&P 500 or diversification is, is what that really does is, is you just get the average and, and that turns out to be okay. But I think people probably got super excited coming out of COVID with just all these things and everybody's looking at their accounts and saying, we're doing great, we're doing great. And then all of a sudden it all turns around and they're not doing great. I think that in a, in a collective approach, especially for the younger people that just started out doing it, right? I mean, the people that have been in the market for two or three of these cycles sort of personally know what's going on and they can sort of deal with it. But if you're brand new, you you, you know, you think when you go in there, okay, I know this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do, but it turns out that you know you're no different than than other people. You some, a lot of people have to personally experience that. So really learn the last the last years,
2: Cryptocurrencies and meme stocks. I've yeah. had 40 of, of investors have lost money in those two uh, vehicles over the last three years.
3: But Bobby, I yeah. think, uh, you know, I'll take a slightly different uh, angle to your very uh, important question, a bigger picture question, I think. Um, and I'm reminded of this. Uh, I'm reminded of this uh, fable that I heard from somewhere. I don't remember exactly who told this but uh, i hope i don't butcher this but this was about uh, you know two dudes walking in the middle of african plains and um, hearing a little bit of rustle in the background one guy saying you know is that is that just wind blowing and the other guy just took off before he could even answer we're all ancestors of the guy who took off you know yeah. <laughs> so essentially what that tells you is The brain, human brain, is wired to be, you know, between fight or flight. We are always wired to take flight. And particularly when it is hard-earned money in the financial markets, um, flight appears to be a very easy approach. But, uh, you know, the last time I checked, there weren't saber-tooths walking in Wall Street. Of course, there are certain greedy people, you know, would like to separate you from the money, but. it's not that dangerous, and as a result, I think if um, we take a patient approach to at least the way I think about investing is patient approach to high-quality businesses mm. that have those features: high return on incremental capital, high reinvestment, run by quality people. And I'll come back to Keith's comment about autocratic nations in a second. Now, if I take that approach with a view on valuation as being a sort of a reasonable valuation as opposed to looking for cigar butt approach. Uh, that allows me to take that really long-term approach and uh you know not be uh totally uh demoralized by what's happening in the market and all the noise that comes out of it. Back to Keith's point about that autocratic uh um you know nations not having similar kind of return. So that's absolutely true. Um, you know, I one of the important questions I ask is, is it a business run by honest, competent management teams with skin in the game? I typically look for owner operator type of businesses. Uh, and uh, that plays out uh, well to the benefit of the shareholders, to everybody's benefit actually over time. But that's a very classic US, Western Europe kind of a concept. Um, and you see that in uh, Hong Kong, China, India, um, and many other Asian and even Latin American countries, Um, you may see a large ownership interest from the founders of the founding family, and yet your uh, uh, returns may not necessarily be comparable to what you may have uh, generated by a similar company in the West. I think partly it's because and I can speak from at least a couple of examples in India. Uh, there was a big software company back in the uh, 80s and 90s. The founder, um, who owned a big chunk of the company, woke up one day and said, uh, sorry, guys, I've been cooking up the books. It was a great business, phenomenal returns, was audited by Pricewaterhouse, and publicly traded, of course. Um, people made a lot of money, but uh, you know the point is, uh outside the outside North America and Western Europe, there is a tendency to use these businesses as a piggy bank, and um, that eventually comes back to bite you know we, the outside shareholders who are never really 100 percent informed about what's happening inside. So um anyway, so you know it, fear drives a lot of our decisions these days. Um, you know, we've had the Ukraine war, we've had run-up in inflation, potential rate increase, um, you know, everything else that has evo- that has developed from those types of fears, that's what is driving uh, what's happening in the market over the last few months. Again, if, if I'm taking a five, 10-year approach, I see this as a fantastic opportunity. Some of the companies that I own, um, one of the Swedish companies that I own is uh, Evolution. Um, uh, you know The company is essentially doubling every 18 months. Uh, with no debt on the balance sheet, on a global scale, it's generating EBITDA margins of 70 plus percent. Founders are on the board, and yet multiples have come in significantly. It's now trading at high teens earnings multiple. It's generating north of 100% in terms of uh. Uh, free cash flow conversion. So businesses like that get uh, uh, completely thrown out with a baby. And uh, I think it's a matter of having some patience and waiting it out.
2: What ticker is
1: this trade?
3: This is Evolution AV. The ticker is EVO. Great. It trades in yeah. Stockholm. And, and, uh, uh, yeah, and, and As Shri said,
1: Sweden is one of the countries that probably has one of the better governance up there with the U.S. and the other in terms of the way that they've done it. And it's, what's really interesting about Sweden is you have a number of companies, Evolution being probably a great example of this, of serial acquirers, really good corporate governance. It's really a good location, you know, epicenter outside of the U.S. and U.K. where that's really happening. And but if you put this in historical perspective, the the those countries, the ones we're talking about, are the exceptions to the rules. For thousands of years, companies were run by families, and as Shri said, the families looked at it as the piggy bank because they owned it. That was what they did. That was what they did for thousands of years. Now we've got a new system that started out in the in the Netherlands, went to the UK, spread around the world, went to a number of places. So in essence. From a historical perspective, outside of the places that have really been influenced and affected by this Anglo-Dutch type of a system, you still have this system that's been around since the beginning of time when all these companies were owned by the families. And you as a private investor could go along, but you're pretty much just around there for the ride. And if the guy can do whatever he wants. (laughs) You know there's and there's and and the laws in some of these countries are not set up to really even protect you they it's set up to protect the guys that own the businesses so it's yeah sweden's a really neat place to look for companies i mean it's just it, there's a lot of real interesting interesting um sort of companies over there but
3: absolutely i would second that sorry kevin
2: uh
0: steven you were about to say something
3: No, I was just going
2: to pivot a little bit uh, about maybe some of the risks in in the market today um, that that have occurred with a couple companies in my portfolio where uh, the stock prices have really taken a big hit over the last few years and there have been opportunistic then buyout offers. And so there's a big risk here in this environment for take unders, uh, so to speak, where, okay, fine, the stock's down 50% over the last two years, um, and so somebody comes in and makes a 20% premium buyout offer um, and oftentimes it's accepted and so th- this is something that I have um, and I think Keith might have been involved in this company as well Countryside Partnerships in the UK that's happened to it's happened to another company in my portfolio as well and uh, it's very very disappointing and that is actually a risk to our strategies uh, that you know this kind of patience and, and let the market realize the value when you have more shorter term investors, more shorter term shareholders involved who are willing to sell out at a premium to what the market is, is, is showing, but a big discount to the actual value of the company.
1: Yeah. And, and you have to be careful. I mean, there's some like as Stephen said, I mean, I I'm somewhat pleased in terms of the resolution of the countryside, because as a result of that, we will get a large equity in the combined business. But what can typically happen is these things get taken out for cash and the upside that you basically bought the, you bought the company for in essence is basically going to be that that's going to, someone else is going to get the reward in that. And sometimes you end up with situations where, I mean, this happened to me last year in a company called Cambria Automotive in the UK, there was a group of investors that basically said, we're going to go together. And one guy decided to go off and do his own thing. And basically make a deal with management, and therefore the whole management was able to take over the company. The guy said he's he did it for he was looking out for his shareholders. It's like I mean, come on, I mean, but that's kind of stuff happens. like like Steve said, that's one of the risks of invaluing investing in deeply undervalued companies is someone else can go out there and basically just they realize it too. You're not the only person that has this information. They realize it's cheap. And if management isn't of the highest quality, they will, you know, they could be on oh, the shareholder base. And if you have, um, yeah, you
2: know, if you, if you have certain shareholders that'll uh, continue to own a portion of it when it's, when it goes private, then, you know, their interests are not aligned with yours. Um, uh, yeah. You know, this is the nature of the markets today. I think where the shareholder bases generally are more short term looking in, in, in nature. Uh, and that again, that is a risk to our strategies.
0: You know, I've also been seeing a lot of difficulties in MA, you know, especially on the on the smaller side. I know I know it seems that there's a seems seemingly a bit more action. There have been some microcap takeouts, and you know, you just talked about Cambria and you know, there's been some others, but at the same time, it's been very difficult getting some deals done as well. You know, yeah, I finance,
2: know. definitely financing issues, of course, and yeah. and not only uh, not to say that there will be uh, indefinitely, um, but you know when there's changes in interest rates, uh, rapidly changing, mm-hmm. and uh, you know there, there's uncertainty in the underlying financials. There's supply chain risk disruptions and other things like that, which uh, affect smaller companies maybe to a higher degree.
0: You know what actually has been another very interesting. Thing that I'm not sure how many retail investors have been picking up on because, you know, when times were good, when I've been talking with CEOs, we just launched due diligence uh, series on Planet Microcap, is that t- when times are good, you know, maybe a bit more cash, maybe some of the smarter companies maybe raise a little bit of capital thinking, okay, maybe grow through acquisition and, uh, you know, they're actively looking for stuff. But the the going line that I've been hearing when talking with companies in the last, I'd say three to four, six months is everyone's just reinvesting the business, heads down, focusing on the business, focusing on the business, focusing on their the the TAM that's in front of them, and not even really considering some of what else is out there, just because they know that those companies that might potentially be acquired, you know, either they're going to be asking for too much or they just can't get those deals done.
2: Yeah, I mean, two parts of it. I mean, their bandwidth. I mean, if you're if you're going through challenges in your business and dealing with everything today, um, you know, and the actual the actual financials and, and, and uh, business strategy, uh, you don't have the bandwidth to, to focus beyond that. Um, and then number two, you know, as you mentioned, um, there there are other competitors that um, may, you know, those competitors who may go into bankruptcy in the future. And so there, it pays to be patient. And if you're the stronger competitor um and uh and you you know you you're, you're beating you know the competition so to speak um you, you might not need them and so uh, I, I could see and and you know of course everything else with uh you wanting preserve to preserve your cash um as a protective measure and there uh, possibly being issues in the credit market uh, you can understand why especially smaller companies might. Uh, Uh, you know might be just on pause for now. I think again uh, in the larger companies divestitures and restructurings are Mm -hmm. a fascinating uh, thing to look at not just now but over the next few years I think because you know when you have stock prices languishing activists come in, um, CEOs want to make changes and you know that often involves spin-offs and uh, closing down certain you know, you know, certain, certain sectors uh, or whatever subsidiaries. So, um, you know, that's, that's where there really could be some interesting
1: opportunities. Well, well, one thing that that I've seen in some of the companies I've looked at specifically, and we do own this company, Asbury, it's a a automobile dealer is that you end up with companies with these huge TAMs and the TAMs are just so big that in essence, you know, it's, it's not, you know, because the the, the, dealer, the dealership business is probably a good example because most dealerships are owned by private individuals that depend, that may, there may be some multi-generational, but there's a lot of people that are aging out, right? I mean, these guys bought these businesses that came back from World War II, started a franchise business, you know, and they're basically, they're cashing out. And so they're probably going to cash out in the next five to 10 years. So there's going to be this huge window of these businesses that, that are going to be out there for sale. And, I think the smart guys, I mean, like one of the things that Asbury does is really good is clustering. So they'll say, okay, these are the companies we will we we'll set up a cluster in a cert, 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 certain geographic region and look for people that wants to sell to us in that cluster because the economies of scale and the automobile dealership business are all local. So if you, you can be the biggest company. And have the low, not have the best margins and the best turns. That's exactly what's going on in the automobile business. If you look at a company like Asbury versus like AutoNation, Auto is the biggest, okay, but Auto Nation doesn't it doesn't have the same level of clustering as as Asbury. So Asbury can have higher turns, higher margins because all the the economies of scale are local. But the business is just gigantic, and so in my mind, that's one way at this point that companies can. So, so, And they'll follow this typical kind of strategy where well, they'll buy a business, take on some debt, pay down the debt with the business, and then sort of see what's available. If something's not available, they'll buy back stock. And so that's sort of like a virtuous model that can just be, you know, while you're waiting for this. And what happens with these companies is the market, in a number of cases, the company's viewed as cyclical or not I have a whole lot of organic growth. The market will value the companies at really low prices. So management has the the buyback option becomes very valuable to them. Now the buyback option becomes less valuable if the valuations are really high, but the market has a tendency to value these companies on organic growth, not on total growth. And I think that's where the, where the, um, where, the, where you, as an investor and as a looking at some of these managers, they can take advantage of that sort of mismatch in the market in terms of the way that they're pricing some of these companies.
0: Keith, it's uh, funny that you bring up how you know Tam sometimes is so bad. I don't even ask it anymore on on the due diligence because what you know I look at like what's what's the point, right? You know, uh, you just get goofy yeah. numbers, and also their focus, especially in micro caps, like you, they more more often than not, to just need to kind of focus on one vertical. Own that, and then then they can start to kind of grow yeah. in some other opportunities or you know that, that. street. You you wanted to uh, add something to this?
3: No, um, you know my uh, uh, portfolio is much bigger than the traditional microcap sort of sized uh, companies. Um, I see opportunities. Uh, you know, I see opportunities for acquisitions. I own a company called Heiko, which is an aircraft parts manufacturer. And that's a type of an acquisition I don't mind or acquisitive growth that I don't mind. Um, you know, where HIKO um, acquires targets, but not 100% of them, leave 20, 30 some percent um, for the selling shareholders, and they remain vested in the combined entity as a result. Um, as Steve mentioned, obviously, as a result of um Financing issues. Uh, not that Heiko uses outside financing that extensively all the time, but they do use uh, debt when available. As a result of that, and as a result of sellers generally viewing this current opportunity as a little less attractive, total volume, deal volume has gone down. Uh, now that's one company in the portfolio that sort of grows through acquisitions. But uh, generally speaking, my portfolio is, um, you know, organic growth focused, and uh, that's what that's what I generally prefer, anyways. So uh, I may not have as much to add to what both Keith and Steve. Uh,
0: well, well, one thing that I think that I think you brought up, and actually all three of you brought up here today, and it's something that Keith more pretty much uh, mentioned in his letter is how it's this changing in the value oriented special situation where they're, they're out there, but there is now this somewhat shift where you're like, okay, I want to find those businesses that may not be like what I just said, not so much looking to grow through acquisition, but really just have that value framework, but more growth oriented. Right. I think, I think all three of you would, would agree that that's really where your, your focus. Absolutely. Coming, right? Absolutely. I mean,
3: Um, You know, I think I mentioned this once before in your podcast, Bobby, but, uh, you know, one country that I continue to like is Poland, where I see tremendous opportunities. Uh, Of course, it's a former communist satellite country, and it still has, at least the Western world still has a little bit of a jaundiced view when they look at Poland. But um, Poland is my biggest Non-U.S. exposure at this point. I've got two businesses invested in Poland. One of them I'd like to highlight here is exactly what you just referenced: organic growth. This is Dino Polska, DNP is the ticker. It trades in Warsaw Stock Exchange. Phenomenal business. Um, it's essentially a 4,500 square feet grocery store, and um, it's growing at a rapid cl- rapid is 28 to 30 percent uh growth per year in, both in terms of uh, number of stores as well as in terms of uh top line and uh, again a business that doesn't rely on debt to grow doesn't use doesn't rely on acquisitions to grow um owner still owns 51 percent and is the chairman of the board um, Poland has certain unique features unlike most of the countries more people live in rural and Uh, small-town Poland than in bigger cities. And that plays well into this company's strategy of opening up stores in these rural areas. So, um, you know, you can... And, and, uh, uh, you know, unlike, for example, Walmart, which started with a focus in small-town America, um, but took 22 years to become free cash flow positive, Dino Polska is already free cash positive they're using internal cash to redeploy to reinvest into the into new stores and so um, you can still find opportunities like this or you know definitely both within the US and non US with uh, all those features owner oriented you know high returns high reinvestment and uh, uh, and so yeah uh, you know it doesn't rely on acquisition per se to continue to put up that kind of number
1: very good. Oh, and, and so it's like as Shri had said, I mean, I've got there's some there's one company I want to mention here that we just bought in our portfolio that is similar to that. It has it has relied somewhat on acquisitions, but it does have a high return on equity and it's a berry berry packaging or berries plastics. So in essence, it's a plastics company in the US. We own it. Um, it's growing. I would say historically it's grown really well. I mean, if you add in the acquisitions and the other pieces, it's grown you know, 18% per year over the past five years and 28% per year over the past 10 years. I think it probably can grow at least 10% per year going forward. Um, But again, the company has some, some perception issues because it's in plastics and people don't like plastics, but their focus is packaging. When you think about packaging, packaging is a key aspect of most consumer products. Most of their sales are to consumer products and to, and to medical type product industries. Those are two really great industries where packaging is a key aspect of, of when you think about a consumer product that you buy in the store, all of them have a really good packaging aspect to their business. So these, this company, and it's right now it's selling for like it's selling for you know seven to eight times free cash flow. It's got the great historical growth we talked about and a potential and continue to go going forward. The headwinds, I think, which which may change, is you got this, ES, this anti-plastics ESG thing, but I think eventually that will that will actually sort of change and turn around. But that but that's an example of a company that's a it's not a sexy business, it's not a high tech business, but it's it's just a business that's just gonna grow a solid growing business as one of uh, you know as as John Neff talked about, sort of these unrecognized growth companies that if it just grows in the low teens percent going forward selling, you start out and going in valuation at eight times free cash flow. But the key thing behind these businesses, I think that's how the process has sort of evolved over time, is looking at what are those growth drivers? And are those growth drivers, what are the KPIs for those? And are those growing and tracking those? So it's combining sort of saying, okay, you know, it's different from a traditional deep value, but it's adding some additional aspects of it of diving into the business and understanding what the growth rates are and just make, making sure that that you know the, the, that they're going to grow at least as much as what it's been in the past, maybe if not a little bit more or what you think that's going to be? in this case, we're sort of assuming a deceleration, which could be conservative but if it continues going forward at at higher numbers and that becomes even more, a bigger margin of safety. The other aspect that this business does, it it has this LBO feature. So it'll buy a company, pay down debt, buy a company, pay down debt. The same thing that Asbury does. It buys a company, pays down debt, but if it can't find a business, it's gotten gotten bigger over time. So it's targets, but it still only has about 20% of the TAM. So it has 80% left. Uh, Top three businesses have 20% of the TAM. They probably have maybe 10% of the TAM. But if they can't find a business, which is what can happen as you get bigger, then they just buy back stock and the market treats them as a cyclical. So, in essence, they can just buy back stock and it becomes very accretive. So, I mean, right now, selling at like a seven times free cash flow, you live buy back stock, they're getting, they're buying back their stock at, at eight, you know, at, at you know, a 13%, they get 13% return on buying back their stock. And so, and from that perspective it, it's a, it's an the one thing you got to you do need to be concerned about, about these companies buying back stock is it's the terminal value right I mean where companies run into problems is is if they're buying back stock and the terminal value is less than the value today they're wasting money. but if you buy back stock and you think the terminal value is going to be higher then your then it becomes accretive but, but that's sort of like a a pattern I found in a number of the companies that I like where they'll, they'll, they'll borrow money, take an acquisition, and have a, have a, a historical record of then basically paying down the debt doing another acquisition of the deal go up going down debt and then when nothing's available buy back stock. I mean I've seen that it's probably a common sort of model I think four to five of the companies we have in the portfolio but I like that when I see that sort of that that sort of situation in a company
3: absolutely
0: by the way not not to go off on a tangent but we said that we'd probably be recording at the time that a uh, you know there would be the 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 Fed announcement and uh yeah we got it um raised by seventy five basis points again. Yeah, i
2: facetiously was going to ask you, Keith, what effect this uh, interest rate?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the interest rate for, for, the, for these levered companies it would have the effect as you'd expect. A lot of them are 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 challenged, but again, I think as long as you you believe in the model, the companies are doing well. Th- this just becomes, they can buy back stock at a cheaper price. Right. I mean, if you're, if you're looking at buying this business for the long term, one thing you've got to do is you need to make sure that they've got their, their coverage is significant oh. enough and they're not going to, and they're not going to run into distress. You know, a lot of these companies like Barry's rated triple B they have yeah. adequate six times coverage. So I'm pretty sure that the company isn't going to run into financial distress. And so a company like that, with that, it's a keyword, and my question
2: was facetiously.
1: <laughs> yeah, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I think the interesting thing about these companies is, you know, levered companies are again are ones that are getting hit really hard. But again, I think a lot of these are indiscriminately sold off, and, it, sure. and that really plays to the companies that have this card of buying back stock. And unfortunately, in Europe, for whatever reasons. Number of companies don't like to buy back stock. And I think that really handicaps them versus, let's say, a US competitor that's willing to do that because the US competitor, if they really understand the value of their business, can really, in essence, provide some leverage to the shareholders buying the shareholders of the stock. It really, it really adds a lot over time. Cause I mean, you see these companies where the share count's gone down 50, 60 percent over 10 or 20 years, and you're just like, wow, you know, it's just and and it's added that it's it just it just can be a really nice combination if you if you um if, if you can do that. But like I said hopefully, pe- country you know um, companies in Europe will feel more comfortable with this over time. I think it may have been just it's just more of a historical precedent. They just don't do it. But the one thing that clearly I think American companies will do is they'll buy back stock if
3: it's cheap. Um, yeah, I agree. European culturally. companies I find uh, to be more comfortable paying dividend. Which is actually a lot less attractive for the eventual investor because of the tax impact. And um uh, but in you know, whatever the case may be, most European companies are comfortable just paying a dividend as opposed to well, well, I think, I think partly it's also because when they when you require them to buy back stock, particularly the way you put it, Keith, uh being aware of the terminal value and being able to buy it back. Um um, at an attractive price relative to intrinsic value. Um, I feel like they fear that we, the investors, require them to be more like investors, that they're not comfortable with. And so they want to be operators and just paying a dividend. Uh, they don't have to think mo- much about paying a dividend, and yeah. that's what allows them to remain um you know, remain patient for the entire business. But I agree. it's, a, it's a, a, Dividend disease is a problem that's a little bit more prevalent in Europe than here. But, but there is
1: a case to make, to make if you do buy dividends. Like, for example, if you look at some of these oil and gas companies, they're creating a lot of cash flow today. I really agree with the philosophy of them paying it mainly in dividends and not in buybacks. Because if your terminal value is going to be shrinking over time, Buying back stock is a very risky thing to do because you can lose a lot of money that way. It may be better to, to and what I think the smarter oil and gas companies I've seen have done have sort of done a balanced approach, but they tilted it more towards dividends because we know there's going to be a terminal value there, but we just don't know how much it's going to be. And how much do you want to bet your company that it's still going to be especially in oil and gas, because it's got such a wide variance of what can happen there. I mean, if you're, if you like for the companies, I think that Shree invests in the the higher quality businesses, I think everyone could agree that their terminal value is going to be bigger. And so buybacks make a lot of sense. But when you're uncertain, I think that's where dividends make sense. But there doesn't seem to be a distinction between the two in a lot of cases, but-
0: Absolutely. All right. Well, I think we're getting close to, you know, our, our allowed allowable time here. So I think I, you know, I want to try and close this out because I think, uh, listen, there's so many different rabbit holes we can keep going on. We can talk about how, you know, an, another hike can affect things, but I figured let's, let's do our, our closing takes, you know, thinking, thinking long-ish term, I guess. Right. Uh, I, I try I, on these pods. I try not to do like that. All right. And then, you know, what do you think for the rest of 2022 going into 2023? But you know, if, if for your, I, I want to know from your mindset, whatever, how you define long-term to be, how are you positioning yourself? So Steven, I'm going to go to you first. Yeah. Well, first of all,
2: um, at least we won't lose another planet this year. So I'll, I'll end in that. Uh, <laughs> because, <laughs> I mean, it, no matter what happens this year, we have to, Count that as a success. I
0: was, um, I was worried about Saturn personally.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, certain certain. Um, I don't know. Is it a planet if it doesn't actually have? Um, I don't know, like a core. You know, if it's all gas, gaseous. Um, is it, I don't, anyway, um,
0: I. Uh, <laughs> what am I doing? I know you're. Sa- I know you're setting me up, but I won't. I won't take the bait.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, for me, I'm looking for uh, companies as usual, but with smart management, but who are really taking advantage of the current opportunity, um, whether it's through strengthening their, their own business um, and taking market share, uh, or whether it's opportunistically buying back stock, uh, or whether it's making opportunistic acquisitions. And so those are the areas that I'm looking at, uh, the companies that I'm looking at. I'm size agnostic, um, but there are a few out there. Um, the watch list is growing. Uh, I've been busy doing a lot of research on these watch list companies. And I think these are the companies that really, it, it's something you can look to buy during this, these market dislocations that you can hold for the next five to seven years. And you're, you're buying it at a depressed um, at a depressed price Uh, and also there's some upside uncertainty, which is a positive. There's upside uncertainty as to uh, modeling something out over the next three to five years because of the qualitative decisions that smart management is making right now. Um, So I think it's an exciting time. The watch list is growing. And I think now is the time for smart investors to build the foundation of their portfolio over the next three to five, seven years.
0: Very good.
3: Shree? Sure. Sure. Um, actually, uh, you know, I haven't changed anything in terms of investment criteria or the type of businesses I'm looking for. It's still, um, I'm still looking to get um, a positive answer to the following four questions: Do I understand the business? Is it a high quality business? Is it uh, owner operated, preferably? And is it available at a reasonable valuation? And in fact, um, uh, I've added only one new company to the portfolio so far. Looking at a couple of different European companies, not sure when I will pull the trigger, but um, so far I've added only one new company and that's in the US. Um, But I take this, uh, um, again, Bobby, if you don't mind, allow me to uh, present this one more chart. Let me see if I can show this. So this is from a a book, um, Atomic Habits. Okay, this is a nice little chart, the plateau of latent potential. On the x-axis is time, on the y-axis is results. Essentially what this tells you is the longer, whatever whatever activity it is, in this case, portfolios and investments, the longer you can remain invested. Look at that curve that's you know shooting through the uh, through to the right and top. Um, there is a period of value of disappointment, which is what we, have, we have, I've gone through over the last nine months. But uh, uh, my view is if I stick to this mantra of getting those four questions answered positively and stick to uh, high quality businesses, these are, as I mentioned, Evolution, for example, or Dino Polska, these are businesses that are generating terrific returns with significant reinvestment opportunities. They're not looking to um, grow through acquisitions. And so I kind of eliminate that potentiality as well. And um, what it needs is uh, patience from my side. What it needs is, uh, it doesn't mean that I'm ignoring everything else that's available in the market. I'm keeping a close eye on what's uh, becoming more attractive. And uh, I'm happy with what I own and continuing to look at a couple of different newer opportunities. So uh, patience is what I would prescribe.
0: Very good. I like patience. It's good. Keith.
1: I
3: I would say the same thing.
1: I mean, I think one, one thing that kept on going through my mind when we're talking about the number of concepts here is we have a good amount of exposure in South Korea. South Korea, I think, has a lot of sort of the latent potential that Steve has mentioned. There's a lot of conglomerate companies there. And the management teams in Korea are finally realizing the the government has provided incentives. The companies are realizing that, that they can get some additional value from doing a number of these creative type of activities. And, and I think it, it's going to start to happen. And once it happens, I think it's just going to there's going to be a lot of real interesting situations over there. Um, the other thing they do have is they do have a basis in sort of Western thinking in terms of the way that they they do governance and the government has sort of encouraged that and they're moving more towards because, you know, all, all companies over time, you transition from the family run type of businesses to a third party run or basically owned type of business And that transition, it, the various stages of development, some countries are just starting out. Some are completely towards you know third party ownership, which is a lot of it's in the United States and other countries. Korea is at a, a place I think that's it's moving at least towards that direction. A lot of countries really honor they're moving back and it becomes uncertain. So that's what gets me excited there. but but, I, but but I think overall, trying to find businesses that trying to find growth outside of it's almost like it's an interesting compliment, I think to Shree's approach trying to find, businesses where growth is outside of organic growth. So I think the two strategies probably work good together. And the fact that trying, you know, trying to basically be able to, um, you know, f- identify those businesses, um, they, they clearly have different sets of, you know, um, KPIs, different sets the, the way that management looks at things and stuff like that between the two, the two approaches. But I think they both can be successful. The one thing I've noted about a lot of these businesses that consolidate. If you look at their historical charts, you see a lot of them going up into to the right. And what that tells me is that tells me that the market is not anticipating the growth in the stock price. If the market had anticipated the stock, the growth in the stock price, it would go up and then be flat, right? But the market consistently underestimates the growth in the company's cash flows and the value over time. And that's what sort of creates that sort of stair step and I think you see that amongst companies that, that are doing relatively well is that what investors are taking advantage of is the underestimation of that growth potential in the businesses. And that's what we're trying. I think as modern valued investors, I think that's what we what we really need to include, which I think all of us are doing now, including growth as part of the process. I mean, as Buffett had said, growth and value are at the connected at the hip. There's really, it's just a matter of, it's not it's growth or value, it's just incorporating that into the process of, of what, um of what you're doing. and And it can be misleading buying just a bunch of low multiple stocks, because in essence, now, if you look at most low multiple stocks, most of them are there for a reason. And the reason is there's no growth or it's declining growth. And those are, those can be very risky situations to get involved in. So that that's, I think the, you know, what what I currently say I, I'm excited there's there's a lot of opportunities out there I think as Steve and Shri also have sort of shared I think it's a it's a good it's a good time to 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 either be invested or stay invested or continue to be invested I mean I think the the the, the, the negative things are are things that you know that may happen over what maybe the next you know 6 to 12 months but if you look at historically the market betting betting against the market growing has never been a winning a winning strategy it really you've, you've lost a lot of money if either if you've been in cash or if you've tried to physically short the market over a long period of time so for sure
0: i think that's a great place to end it, guys so with yeah. that um uh, where can people go and find more information for each of you both your website and social media so keith i'll come back to you first on that
1: yeah, so I'm, we're at uh, bonhoefferfund.com. I'm at I'm Twitter KDS at Bonhoeffer. Um, that's my Twitter handle. And you can contact us either, either through, through either, either, either way would, would work for us. Very good. Shree?
3: Yeah, my website is sbncapital.com and uh, Twitter is sbncapital.
0: Steven, close us out.
2: Arquitos.com, uh, A-R-Q-U-I-T-O-S. And uh, you can find me on Twitter, Stephen Keel K-I-E-L. And i uh, love to interact with you there.
0: Very good. All right. Well, guys, thank you so much for joining me today. Really do appreciate it. Good luck. Stay safe. And uh, look forward to our next update.
2: Thanks, Bobby. Appreciate that. Thanks.
0: Thanks for having us. podcast. podcast.